Ashley was with us. Uh, she was going to be with us Wednesday night, sacrificed her time to be here on Wednesday night. Then we canceled on her. Um, and so she has graciously offered to come this morning, is here this morning, to share uh, some uh, practical counselor pro tips on dealing with anxiety. Um, and then, of course, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about anxiety in Scripture uh, in, the, in the service hour. And so uh, I'd just like to welcome Ashley. Thank you. Give her a warm welcome, everybody. Good morning, everyone. So you guys are going to have to work with me. As you see, I have one hand. If I stray too far from the mic, just say step closer um, because I move a lot. And I hear Jordan moves a lot too. So just say, hey, can't hear you, and I'll step closer. So, um, yeah, when Jordan had approached our practice and said, hey, this is what I want to do, you know, and he wanted to really have the clinical or kind of some of the scientific aspects of some of the mental health things. I think next week you guys are doing a a little thing on depression. And, you know, I was like, that's amazing. Because too often we end up just kind of bypassing what, as we'll see, many Americans deal with. And so how do we combine it? Um, And so with... Let's go here. Um, So part of... My training was at Wheaton College in Illinois, and a big part of what we always talked about was the integration of what we know from science with scripture and theology, and where does all this fall? So um, today we're going to be talking about, believe it or not, the good and the bad with anxiety. It's not all bad, and then the ugly part, because we've all experienced it at some part, and then most importantly, what we're going to do about it, or what we can do about it. So here's some of the questions that we'll explore. Obviously, what is anxiety? People every day, oh, I'm feeling anxious, okay? What causes it? You know, often we're just like, people will tell you, well, don't get so stressed out. Don't freak over the little things. Yeah, that's easy to say until you're somebody who actually struggles with anxiety, and then you're like, oh, sure, I'll just stop. Um, Are there different kinds of anxiety? You know, and is there a difference between worry and anxiety? Some women will tell me, oh, I'm just a worrier. It's the way I am. Okay, yep, my mom's one of those. So, mom, how much sleep did you get last night? Oh, I just kept thinking about things. Uh Uh-huh, that's called anxiety, mom. (laughs) Who suffers from it? Um, It's not, you know, as we'll see, it's not, oh, women suffer more from this. And we'll talk about that. Everybody suffers from it. And then good, bad, both. So we'll look at that, and then what you can do about it. So since there's so few of us, we're going to do a little bit of discussion here, and not just me talking the whole time. Throw out ideas of what you would qualify of as anxiety. Just yell it out. Anybody. Nervousness. Okay, nervousness. What else? Raised heart rate. Panic, sweaty palms, nauseous. Yeah, these are all, you know, those signs of anxiety. So with that, and I think this is later on too, what do you guys think, is there a difference between worry and anxiety? What is that difference? A lot of you are nodding yes. So what is that difference? You can control one and not the other. One of you said brain chemicals. When it interferes with life. When it interferes with life. Yep. 
So here's the technical definition. Anxiety disorders include disorders that share features of excessive fear and anxiety and related to behavioral disturbance. So like you said, you know, does it disrupt our daily life? Fear is the emotional response to real or perceived imminent threat, whereas anxiety is the anticipation of a future threat. Do you see the nuance there? Fear is, oh my gosh, we have 60 mile an hour winds, I see shingles flying everywhere, what is going on in Michigan? Anxiety is a perceived, most often, future or potential threat. And as we talked about, you know, there, there is a nuance between worry. You know, you should be worried about some things. You know, you should at least be concerned. And we'll talk about why. But is it in some way, do you avoid doing something? Or do you do something to such a perfectionist extent to avoid that worry? So here's where some of the science comes in. What do you guys think causes anxiety? One of you already said brain chemicals. What else? Stress. Stress. What was that? Work. Work. Stress. Tend to pack our, our lives a little too much. What else causes anxiety? Past experience. Yes. Any other ideas? Sickness, childhood trauma. So the first thing I want to talk briefly about is this whole idea of genetics and biology. You know, if you have gone into the doctor, they ask you a thousand disorders that could be in your family, right? Heart disease, high blood pressure, you name it. Um, the reason why that's so important is because we do see there's a genetic component to this. Now, just because your family may have anxiety or your mom or your dad, it doesn't necessarily mean that you will have it or if you have it, that your kids will have it. It's this whole idea of what we call as a predisposition. And sometimes with that predisposition, it can put us in a vulnerable state, put us susceptible to anxiety, kind of like high cholesterol. If you know high cholesterol runs in your family, perhaps you're one who should avoid McDonald's or have it very sparingly, right? So if you know you're prone to anxiety, there's different things that you can do, you know, like being aware of how much you pack into your schedule. Same concept, it's just we overlook it because it's mental health and it's not our body. We just assume that, well, this is what everybody does, so this is what I'm gonna do, but if you know you're predisposed to anxiety, you gotta choose your things a little bit wiser just like you would if you know that your family is disposed to cholesterol or any of those issues. Um, also, sometimes when you're predisposed, our nervous systems, for those of you out there who understand cars, I grew up in Flint, so everything was a car analogy all the time from everybody, friends, family alike. Um, sometimes our nervous system is what I like to call idols higher. And I wish I had a better way of doing this, but let's say this is the threshold, okay? This is average where nervous system lies. Some people lie below it. Those are the people who like to do crazy things like bungee jumps, skydiving, because they get that thrill. We call them thrill seekers. Well, that's because their nervous system isn't as activated as ours. So they need a people like myself who idle slightly above it. So the idea of exams or just different stresses, like when my computer went out and I wasn't done with this, and Wednesday I was like, 
what am I going to do? Instead of like, well, if my power's out, Oakland Drive is probably out. I probably won't have the presentation. It was like an automatic 30-second freak out. And then, okay, time out. Not the end of the world. So um, that's what I mean by having a biological or genetic disposition for anxiety. Here's another tricky thing, though, when we talk about genetics and families passing it down, this whole idea of modeled behavior. Think of a time when a parent or anybody else in your life may have modeled an anxious response for you. So, for example, my husband is terrified of dogs. I mean, absolutely terrified. He's not really a pet person to begin with, but he which is ironic because I grew up with 12 animals and now I have none, but he, so he sees a dog and we'll be out walking. He will literally walk across the other side of the street. The dog is on a leash. It doesn't matter what kind of dog it is. And I realized my daughter, who's only three and a half, will see a dog and she automatically is like, mom, it's a dog, it's a dog, it's a dog. And she'll like climb up me. I don't even have to like pull my arms around her and somehow she's already in my arms. That is what we call modeling behavior. Now, I understand that my husband doesn't like dogs, but I had to have a very loving but truthful conversation of, okay, just because you don't like dogs and you don't trust them doesn't mean we need to react in such a way to teach our daughter that, yes, you have to be fearful of them. Cautious, yes. Asking to pet a dog, not going up to stray dogs, but walking all the way on the other side of the street, or what he'll do sometimes if we can't go on the other side of the street, he will literally grab me, put me closest to the dog, (laughs) and keep walking. Which, you know, at least my daughter doesn't, she doesn't understand what dad's doing, which I'm okay with, because I get that he's not an animal person. And that was one of those things when God brought him in my life that I said, is this negotiable or is this non-negotiable for me? Um, and he was awesome enough, I figured I could let that one slide. But that's what I mean by modeled behavior. Sometimes when I work, I work specific, not specifically, but often with kids and teens, I look at and ask, hey, you know, what's it like when you watch your mom or your dad? You know, what kind of things do they, how do they respond to these situations? And oftentimes I hear, oh man, they totally freak out. I'm like, uh-huh, yeah, I... Uh, So you said your parents totally freak out. What's that look like? Oh, yeah, when they're stressed at work, like, they just freak out, and they talk about it, and I'm like, okay, do you guys pray about it? And she goes, I didn't think about that. And I'm like, yeah. And that's why we got to be cautious as parents. What we're modeling for our kids doesn't mean we hide from it. doesn't mean we keep it all in. But being honest and saying, you know, dad or, you know, mom has a lot of meetings this week and is a little stressed out. Let's pray about it. Um, And that's that fine line between not hiding it from our kids, but also not modeling it for them. So you said, you know, past childhood trauma. Depending, this word trauma gets brought up in our society all the time, right? Especially with veterans. So I've been working recently with a new family. And when the idea of PTSD and trauma came up, they literally said to me, That person wasn't in the military. Yes, because trauma only happens in the military. So you all are free. If you're not in the military, no trauma can happen to you. Um, But that's a common misnomer in our culture. It doesn't even have to be something as much as child abuse. 
all depends on how it was perceived when it happened. I work with a young lady that is terrified of storms. So you can imagine what Wednesday was like for her. I didn't see her, but she was texting me. um, And at one point in session, as we were kind of exploring all this, she said, I remember one time when I was about five, she's now 21. Yeah, she's 21. She said, I remember a big storm in Colorado. And I remember my parents making me rush inside. And where she had rushed inside, it was like a little mud room that had like a tin roof. But the sound of the wind and her parents couldn't get to her really quick. And the door slammed and like locked her in, or at least to her five-year-old mind. That has translated to this immense fear of storms and wind. Because as a five-year-old, she felt trapped and mom and dad weren't there. So it's easy in our culture to think that, okay, it's abuse, it's physical, you know, it's the sexual abuse, it's being in, you know, combat. Not necessarily. Those things definitely do happen. They do make people anxious in how they perceive, but it's not always the case. Okay, this one is a little little trickier. This one is a little of a hot-button issue at times. Um, So lately, have you guys heard... Or seen on Facebook, the Dr. Axe, anybody, some of the healthy eating. Okay, so over the last six months, I'm kind of like, okay, is this stuff real? Like, okay, they're everywhere. These free webinars are everywhere. And as I've come to realize and do some pretty extensive research on it that, didn't know this one, 90% of our neurotransmitters which are the very things in our brain that help control our mood, are actually produced in our gut and our intestine. I don't know why. Ask God that one. I don't know why they would be produced in our gut when they're in our brain, but that's the way it works. So then when we have, you know, our American diet with a lot of the chemicals and everything, I'm not judging you, I ate Taco Bell last night. Um, I am pregnant. That's just what happened to some good last night. And Chick-fil-A's line was, like, all the way wrapped around by coals. And I was like, nope, not doing that one. Um, But because of our diet and because of all these things that can inflame, like, we hear a lot about autoimmune, right? Things like fibromyalgia, arthritis, all of these different things that have skyrocketed in the last five years. A lot of that has to do with our diet. And if our diet isn't good and our body is kind of a hot mess inside our mood is going to be affected because our body's not producing and the neurotransmitters aren't working the way that they're supposed to. By the way, if you have any questions, just go go ahead and stop me. And one of the biggest areas that we will focus on is our core belief, what we call our core belief, but and more specifically our thoughts. Where do we let our thoughts go? And we'll do a lot of examples for this. And Jordan, aren't you talking about holding thoughts captive today? Was that what was out in the sign? Uh, It's sort of part of the whole thing. Okay. Yeah. So we'll go over that extensively, and then Jordan will give you guys a great. So let me ask you this. Are there different types of anxiety? What would you label them as? Bipolar, separation anxiety. So you kind of look at it like on a spectrum. Like, okay, this is mild. This is in the middle. 
That's fair. Yep. So this is, again, very technical. Here's a list of all the main anxiety disorders um, that people get diagnosed with. So generalized anxiety, it's not one specific thing that you're afraid of. It's kind of an all-encompassing multiple things that people can be afraid of. Social phobia kind of speaks for itself. Like you said, specific situations. Panic disorder. Somebody had mentioned panic earlier. You know, these are those panic attacks, those very acute, very sudden, oh my gosh, I feel like my world is crumbling and the sky is falling. Agoraphobia, not liking to be out of the house. Um, you know, other specific phobias, needles, blood, you know, just different things that, you know, we're all might be a little leery of. None of us are like, woohoo, sign me up for that big needle over there. Um, definitely was not my reaction in the ER last Saturday. Um, you know, but it's, do you avoid going to the doctor? And do you, you know, at what level are you when you have to get your blood drawn or anything? You know, we talked a little bit about trauma and PTSD. And then we have those obsessive compulsive, you know, we often joke about hand washers or checking if the door's locked or the oven's off. So these are, we're not, sorry guys, we're not going to talk specifically about those disorders. I just wanted to kind of bring them in and see the broad range that we're talking about. So who suffers from anxiety? Raise your hand if you think women suffer more from anxiety. Some of you men are like looking beside you like. <laughs> yeah, that's a, my wife is right next to me and I don't want to get in trouble. Okay. How many of you think men suffer more? Okay. Got one. So let's see what the statistics really are. It's not just you, by the way. If it was just you, I don't think I'd be standing up here. I think Jordan would just have handed you a card and said, go see them. Um. 40 million people suffer in the U.S. That's 18.1% of our population. Exactly. Those are just the ones that are diagnosed or being medicated for it. 40 million people. And yet we have such a lack of emphasis on mental health. But yet we have 18% of our population that's either seeking services or more of them are just medicated, which medication is fine. Um, you know, of course, I'm a little biased to the therapy end of it, but that's a lot of our population. So, yes, statistically, women are said to suffer more. However, like you said, they've also noted that women tend to report it more. Men, as you can admit at times, our culture is not the most sensitive to when you have difficulties going on. Don't talk about it. What was that? I will say often when, when we have marital counseling or some other or kids, it's often the wife or the mother who calls in. So yes, um, it, I think it is a little more difficult because our society doesn't, isn't as gracious with men as it is women. Yes. Did everybody hear her question? Her question slash comment was, don't men stereoty- or often manifest it different? 
And the answer is yes. You know, she pointed out sometimes men might have more anger um, that is displayed than a woman who comes in is like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. You know, or they're just a worrier and going. A lot of women hide their, or I shouldn't say hide their anxiety, cope with their anxiety by excessive busyness. Not that they're the only ones, but that just tends to be what I see often in the clinic. So yes, men and women manifest it differently. So a lot of times when I've, I don't work a lot with um, alcoholism or substance abuse, but a lot of times when I have, often the underlying causes of the addiction is depression or anxiety. It's just manifested in the substance abuse. So very good point. So, anxiety, good, bad, both? What do you think? It's not a trick question, I promise. Both? Some of it's good. Yep. Depends. That is a very fair answer. (laughs) And we've talked about that. So, I want to show you guys something. And I wish I could take credit for what's coming up here, but it totally came off the internet. So, this is what's called the Yerke-Dotson Law, okay? As we look at it, let me see. There it is. If we look, okay, on this side, we have performance. On this side, you know, we have anxiety. So, if we have no anxiety about anything, well, we don't really, we don't really do much about it. You know, again, I work a lot with kids, so the first example that comes to mind is if you really don't care about that test, if it doesn't cause you any amount of anxiety, why are you going to study for it? Same thing with work. If you have a big presentation coming up, but it's not that big of a deal to you, you're not going to put forth the amount of effort. However, if you really freak out about it and you're over here, it's too high. Your production or your performance still goes down. So ultimately, there is, believe it or not, a good level of anxiety depending on the situation but it's at that it's right at that optimal peak because too low you don't care you're not going to do anything too high you're going to be too anxious to even focus on it does this make sense like i said i love this cartoon when i found it okay so here's the bulk of what we're going to talk about what can we do about anxiety Obviously, if 40 million people suffer with it, what can we do about it? Do we just suck it up and accept that it's a daily part of life? Or is there more we can do about it? So the first thing is to recognize when you're on the other side of that little bell curve, when it's too much, when you're starting to edge over and you're getting too anxious. So what does anxiety feel like? Earlier, somebody mentioned sweaty palms, racing heart. So, this is some of what it feels like. This sense of dread. Shaky, feel faint, choking, rapid heartbeat. It's not always choking, but just feeling like you might not be able to swallow easily. Wobbly legs. Here's another one. This is more kind of some of the panic. Sweating, hard to think clearly, rapid heartbeat, trembling. You know, we even can have some of these physical manifestations of nausea, of having to go to the bathroom. Um, And everybody, even though these are the general symptoms, everybody experiences it a little bit different too. So keep in mind that what does mine feel like for me? When I'm getting too 
much. When I'm getting over that bell curve, what does mine feel like? So the second thing you can do is start paying attention to your thoughts. When you, again, when you feel yourself getting a little bit too over that bell curve, what are the things that you're thinking? You know, are you thinking, well, like I told you last Wednesday when my computer died, I had no power. I was thinking, oh my gosh, without this PowerPoint, how am I supposed to do this? The idea of having to speak without anything guiding me, I was like, that's going to be boring. And I am almost ADHD, so that could be horrendous for everybody involved. Um, so different things is I knew I would mess up. You know, oh my gosh, if I don't nail this, if I don't nail this review at work, I'm going to get fired. You know, if I don't get this done, you know, the worst possible scenario is going to happen. You know, um, sometimes we don't stop and think about the thoughts and we just are like, okay, especially to moms, I need to get the laundry in. I need to get dinner in at this time. The kids have to be picked up at this time. I have to make sure that little Susie's soccer uniform is in the wash and dry. So we don't always stop to think about, okay, if all of that doesn't get done, what's the worst that can happen? So it's slowing it down and looking at some of your thoughts of, okay, wait, everything is not going to fall apart if dinner is done at 6.30 and not 6 o'clock, or if the grocery shopping, unless you have absolutely nothing in your fridge and you have teenagers, then you're going to have some hungry teenagers and that would be horrible. So sometimes it's just starting to recognize what the thought is fueling it. Come on. There it goes. So, <clears throat> and we'll talk more about this. When we look at, once we start identifying some of those thoughts, like, I'm going to fail, we look at what we call distortions. You know, what thoughts are, I always call them lies. You know, and what are those lies? Because those lies really fill in what that core belief is about you. What it is that at the very core of you, you're afraid will happen. Or, you know, well, I'm afraid that if I don't get this promotion at work, then that means my, my pride, my sense of self, my self-esteem, my identity. You know, if I don't get to the top of the top, then, you know, who I am, I will be less than. So, here's some common distortions. And Jordan had this PowerPoint emailed to him, so if you want it, you're welcome. Um, you're just welcome to it. Just email him, and he'll be able to give it to you. Um, so real quickly, up at the top here, we have all or none thinking. This is that perfectionistic attitude. Either I have to give it my 100%, or there's no point in doing it. That doesn't help us, because especially as adults, and then when you add in jobs and families, sometimes you can't give it 100%. And believe it or not, that's okay. We just don't feel like it is. Um, another one right here is called a mental filter. So only paying attention to certain types of evidence. So that's like if somebody comes up to you and they're like, hey, you did a great job. And you're like, eh, it wasn't that big a deal. Anybody could do that. Wow. That was just filtering out a compliment that you didn't receive at all. Um, and we do it all the time, right? So if we, if we have this mental filter out the good things that, you know, people say to us or even um, any sort of feedback, of course you're going to feel anxious or a little bit depressed. My favorite, jumping to conclusions, how many times have you said, 
Well, I know that's what you were thinking. I know that's what you meant by that. Yeah, I see some sideways glances. It happens. We jump to conclusions about what we assume somebody meant or what they were thinking. We also jump to conclusions and we kind of do this whole fortune telling thing, which is my, I love that at work we have an eight ball. Even if I'm not in the playroom and I'm dealing with an anxious person, I will go grab that magic eight ball and just have it like on the desk. Because often people say, well, I know this is going to end badly. I know, you know, I know if I try, I'm going to fail at this. And I'll be like, wow, these things actually work? I didn't know that we had a magic eight ball or that you had a crystal ball. That's awesome to know that you, before you even try, know exactly what's going to happen. That's jumping to conclusion. That's this whole idea of fortune telling, of mind reading. Not to single out the women here. But the next one is emotional reasoning. How many times, I mean, men do it too. It's just women, let's just be honest, we're probably more guilty of this one. Um, how many times are you like, you know, I don't feel a certain way, therefore it must be. So like, I feel fat, I must be fat. Or, you know, I don't feel like you love me, you must not love me. Or you could just be having a really rough day. You know, I don't feel like this is going to work out. It must not. It's not going to work out. It happens, but it's being cautious. You have a right to your feelings, but it's holding them captive and asking yourself, how do I know? Which we'll get to some of those questions in a minute. So, uh, catastrophizing. Thinking the worst possible... I'm jumping around, guys. Thinking of the worst possible scenario. So, like on Wednesday, when we got those high winds, and I had that 21-year-old texting me, she was texting me, oh my gosh, the wind, it's so strong. My house is going to blow over. Okay, time out. Okay, I know this is freaking you out. Kind of freaking me out. I didn't tell her that, but I've never seen winds like that in Michigan, let alone in March. I was like, what is happening? I mean, this has kind of been a crazy winter to begin with. But um, when you think of the worst possible situation, like in her mind, she literally was afraid that her house, her windows were going to break, her doors were going to blow open, and that her house would be deteriorated. That is jumping to the worst possible conclusion. Now, for some of us, it's just feeling this sense of anxiety, but the thought behind that anxiety might be, if I don't nail this presentation at work, if I don't, if I don't land this new commission, if whatever it is, then you're going to be fired. Okay, chances are, if you don't do perfect, maybe, maybe you will. But... Even that, even though it would be really hard, is not the end of the world. So catastrophizing is one that we often do common because we think of the worst possible scenario that could be. So. So what do we do? So once we can identify, like I'll tell you, I'm a perfectionist. Well, I like to call myself a reformed perfectionist, but let's be honest. I'm a perfectionist. I, I know that about myself at this point, and so I constantly have to challenge that distortion. Okay, if this isn't perfect, is it really going to reflect badly on me? So when you know, if you know you're somebody who catastrophizes or somebody who jumps to conclusions, you have to ask yourself, what evidence do I have? How do I know? How do I know that that's what that person's thinking? How do I know that my boss, you know thinks that I'm one of the weak links in this team. You don't, unless he's literally said to you, 
you're the weakest link in this team, pull your act together or you're gone, you don't know what they're thinking. Is it truth? You know, and the truth part, luckily for us as Christians, we have an absolute truth that we get to settle upon. There's nothing more frustrating for me, though I'm okay with it, when I have somebody come in um, and they say, you know, I'm not really a Christian. You guys are the only ones who took my insurance. So please leave that stuff out of it. That stuff meaning Bible, God, you name it. Because it's hard to challenge truth if the moral compass is always spinning. It's hard to challenge truth if that bar is never stable. We can challenge truth because even as a perfectionist, at times my goal is to gain approval or to prove myself. I can root myself back in scripture that says, I love you. Not because of what you do, not because of how perfect you are, because you're never going to be perfect. I can root myself in that. So that's why I say challenging the truth, you know, and that scripture piece is one of, is the most crucial part because you have nothing else that you can solidify yourself in. And the only absolute truth is scripture. Okay, so here's an example I was talking about. When you go to challenge it, sometimes you can write it out. Um, Other times you can kind of just do it in your head. So, the unhelpful thought, I'll never find anyone as good. I'll never meet someone else, never have my own family. The distortion is jumping to conclusions. How do you know? So then the rational alternative to this is, I can't tell the future. All I can do is focus on increasing the chances of a positive outcome by behaving in a helpful way today. Or... um, You know, just having a more realistic that, you know, even God has a plan for you. Whatever God's plan is, if it wasn't that person, okay, I trust in God's ultimate plan. Um, Often, as, you know, as adults and in our jobs or with kids, we have the feeling of, I can't handle this. We are so overwhelmed at times, and I just, I can't handle this. Which, truthfully, if you're trying to do it all on your own and not relying on God's strength, you can't handle it. But at the same time, recognizing that that whole idea of I can't handle it in and of itself is emotional reasoning. And so the rational alternative is just because this is difficult emotionally does not mean that I can't handle it. I've handled suffering in the past and I'll do it again. Or I've handled ridiculously crazy days or really tough times with my teenager. This is, this is definitely a storm in life where I've, you know, I've battled this cancer before. This is really tough, but I can get through this because God's the one who's going to give me the strength to get through it. So this is just an idea of how you can challenge those thoughts. So even though we can challenge those thoughts and we can work on redoing our thought life to where we can be less anxious, what do we do in the moment when we know we're starting to feel our body stress out? These are some... Excuse me. These are some things that you can do in the moment to try to bring the anxiety level down so you can focus. Um, progressive uh, muscle relaxation, I think. Yeah. So, and there's scripts for this all over Google. Um, this one's really helpful for when you, um, right before you go to bed at night. So the, the whole concept is you tense up each individual um, body muscle or group of muscles, and then you relax it because As you guys know, when we get stressed out, what do we do? Our shoulders go up to our ears. You know, our bodies react physically 
So by tensing them and then releasing them brings more awareness how tense we are, and it lets our muscles relax. Um, and so you usually stop, start from the top of your head, your neck, your face, all the way down, um, and it can help relax and deal with some of the physical manifestation of anxiety. Imagery. So we're going to do this real quick. Close your eyes. Think of the most beautiful place you've either seen on TV or a postcard or a place that you've been. Got that thought in your head? Now, when you're at that place, what are you seeing right now? I want you to think about every single colored detail. Are there leaves? Are there mountains? What shade of green are they? What does it look like? Imagine every single detail that you can see. What do you hear? If you're in the woods, do you hear the wind rustling through the trees? Do you hear animals scurrying through the leaves? What do you feel? Are you in the hot sun on a sandy beach? Do you feel the grain of the sand? Even what do you taste? What do you smell? Okay, you can open your eyes. So this is sometimes when we're in the midst of being really stressed out and our thoughts are going a thousand miles an hour, something like this can help just slow, stop our thoughts for a minute just so we can take some deep breaths and be able to relax in the moment. You can do this at your office chair. I know I do this at home when my daughter's being sassy as heck and puts herself in timeout because she knows I'm mad um, <laughs> before I blow at her. So um, this is another technique you can do. Mindfulness. This is probably one of the crucial parts to if you're an anxious person. Because often as an anxious person, you're often thinking and regretting about the past and you're worrying about the future. That's a lot that you're thinking about, but you're not thinking about this very moment right now. Matthew 6, 25. You know, the classic verse of Jesus, or passage, where Jesus is telling people, hey, relax, I got you. Look at the birds in the air. They don't do, they don't do much, yet I take care of them, and how much more do I love you than them? Clearly, this is my paraphrase. So, but how much more value are you to God than the birds of the air? And God still provides for them. That's that whole idea of mindfulness. At the end of that passage, he says, don't worry about today for, don't worry about tomorrow for today has enough worries of its own. If it's not something you have any control over right now, then you need to pluck, literally pluck that thought out of your head and say, no, I don't need to worry about that right now. And you keep yourself in just this moment. All right. I can't see. Jordan, do we have a couple minutes for questions? Okay, I should have worn my glasses to see the clock all the way back there. Does anybody have any comments or questions? I know I ran through this kind of quickly. All right, um, well, I really appreciate you guys coming and letting me come in and speak. So I will hand it all back to Jordan.